we're going to be talking about something that could be a very sensitive topic. Um, it's something that I think is not given enough attention, um, at least to find in my own experience as I studied this, I was quite surprised at the things that I learned. And so I feel the need for an additional word of prayer that we might be able to have the Lord's blessing with us as we study. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, today we come uh, thankful for the promise that where two or three are gathered together in your name, you will, you will be with them. And uh, we, we are here, more than two or three of us, gathered together in that name. And um, for the purpose of knowing more about you and more about ourselves. And so I just want to pray that today, in our few minutes that we have to share together, that you'll help us to, to not just have human thoughts, but to, to have thoughts inspired from the throne of God. Lord, use me, but speak directly to your people today. Um, through your word and through your voice speaking to their hearts. May we understand the conscience better, and uh, may we be able to be better people for having had this time together. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, This topic is perhaps even most important at the end of time. I think it's become more important as I've studied Bible prophecy, or it's... (laughs) I've seen it as more important as I've studied Bible prophecy because of the description of what's going to take place in Christianity as we come closer to the end. And so we'll talk about that a little more um, before we're finished. But first of all, we want to agree on an answer to the question, what is the conscience and what does it do? Now, I've asked people this question. I've received quite a wide variety of answers. Um, Some people believe that it is the uh, voice of God speaking directly to the heart. Some people believe that it's just something that, excuse me, is sort of innately inbred in man that leads him to think second thoughts, perhaps, about uh, something he's doing. The Bible doesn't specifically define the conscience. There's no verse that says, in a plain thus saith the Lord, that the conscience is. But it does refer to the conscience in a number of places. So I'd like for us to open our Bibles first in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we find a story where the consciences of men are being um, chronicled, uh, described. The story you're probably familiar with, he went up early into the Mount of Olives, and it was still early in the morning when Jesus came back to the temple and began preaching. And there, as he was, perhaps the sun was just coming up, the day was just beginning, the scribes and Pharisees, some of the rulers of the people, dragged a woman into Jesus' presence who had been caught in the very act of adultery. Now, there was probably no more humiliating place to be dragged from where she was dragged than to the church. And no one more humiliating to be placed in front of than Jesus. Can you imagine? He was holy. He was a teacher. He was respected. And here she is. And so they asked him the question in chapter 8 and verse 5. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? Now you know that this was a trick question. There was no good answer, or at least they thought. In any answer that Jesus gave, he was bound to condemn himself. If he said, stone her they would immediately 
gather their witnesses and run to the Roman authorities because the Roman government had prevented the Jewish leaders from exercising capital punishment. So now he was inciting rebellion against the laws of Rome. If he said, don't stone her, they would gather their witnesses and they would try him before their own tribunal as being contrary to the laws of Moses. So either answer he gave was going to be the wrong answer, and they had him. There's a lot of questions we can ask about this story if you were here in the last, um, last section. But notice what Jesus did. This they said, tempting him, that they may have to accuse him. Jesus stooped down with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. What they hadn't contemplated was that Jesus might have a third option. After all, he was God. You know? In the Desire of Ages, it says the Lord has a thousand ways um, to provide for us, of which we know nothing. I suppose he had at least a thousand answers to this question (laughs) that they hadn't even thought of yet. He's God. And so he stoops down and begins writing in the dust. And uh, it's fascinating what happened um, he, he pretends to ignore them. And that must have been a little annoying. You know, important people don't like to be ignored. At least not for very long. And so as they're pressing forward and as they're, as they're trying, to, trying to get Jesus to answer their question, he just tunes them out and keeps writing. The, and the natural thing for a curious human nature is going to be to try to see what he's writing, right? And so they, they gather around. And when they're writing, uh, I imagine the first person that looked over his shoulder Uh, I can just imagine his face sort of turning pale and sort of his countenance dropping and him turning around and heading out. And what would that do to the rest of them? It would make them want to see what was being written even more. And so they they begin crowding around. And the Bible says that when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone uh, at her, and he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and it says, They which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Amazingly enough, Jesus not only was writing the sins, the secret sins, which nobody else knew about of these men, but he chose to write them in order of their age, beginning with the oldest, all the way to the youngest, one by one, being convicted by what? Their own conscience. Their own conscience. They went out. Now, I want you to notice the, sto- the role of the conscience as noted in this story. It was Jesus' actions and the words that he wrote on the ground that convicted these men, right? It's a trick question. What convicted these men? Their conscience. conscience. But I can almost assure you that as they were leaving the temple on that day, do you think they were all very happy? Wow, my conscience is working great today. Oh, man. It's a good thing I came to church, right? You think that's how they felt? Praise the Lord, I have a conscience. I don't think that's what they were thinking. I think they were probably mad. I think they were probably embarrassed or humiliated or at least afraid they were or going to be or someone else would know who it was written about. I suppose by leaving an order, they sort of gave it away, too. I don't know if if anyone ever connected the lines, but um, 
Here they leave the they leave the temple on that morning, no doubt angry at who? Jesus. Jesus. Now wait a minute. The Bible says they were convicted by their conscience. They're angry at Jesus. Because they didn't even recognize the role of their conscience. And they didn't realize that um, they were blaming Jesus when it was really their conscience that had caused them to leave. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Believe it or not, our consciences are part of us from the time we first reached the age of accountability until we, I suppose, breathe our last breath, or at least are thinking our last rational thoughts. Um, I say the age of accountability because there's a time when I don't think that a young person really knows much the difference between right and wrong. I remember when I was about five years old, I, um, I told my first lie, or at least I thought I did, um, because I think it was the first time I came, became aware of what was truth and what was falsehood, you know, what was telling the truth and what was telling a lie. The problem was that I had climbed up into my mom's ornamental uh, redbud tree with a limb saw that I found in the garage and decided to do some pruning. We'd moved to Arkansas about a few years earlier, and, and, um, and you know, it was a timber country, and everyone was lumbermen, and I was going to be a lumberman. So I started cutting these branches off and improving the appearance of the tree, which some people didn't agree was an improvement. And my older sister, who was three and a half years older than me, was among those. And so she went and she told my mom that I was cutting branches off the tree, which, as I recall now, it probably did look pretty hideous by the time I was finished. And uh, my mom asked me the question, did you cut the branches off the tree? I said, no, I didn't. <laughs> and, uh, and so I said, uh, uh, immediately when I said that, immediately I knew I had told a lie. I mean, it was just like, I felt terrible. I wish I always had that sensitive of a conscience. I mean, it was just like, I, and I made it right. I mean, I was so distraught. I apologized for lying. And I remember I was miserating to my sister, who wasn't really that sympathetic, about my terrible disgrace I'd made of my life and how, you know. And, and I, said, I said to her, uh, I said, that was the first lie I ever told. She said, no, it's not. You've told lots of lies. <laughs> and I probably had. But you see, I hadn't reached an age of accountability. I think there's a point in our lives where we come, we come to know what, our, what is right and wrong, and we become accountable then for, for what we do and what we say. So here, from the time we reach the age of accountability until we're not able to understand anymore or we die... The conscience is a part of our very being. It's referred to sometimes as, uh, as self. When we say things like, I just couldn't live with myself if I did that. Right? Try to translate that, you know. It, if you don't understand what you mean by that, it doesn't make sense. Um, indeed, it's not improper to consider the conscience to be a sort of an innate inner voice. And if we look in our Bibles now to Romans chapter 2. We're going to see another uh, passage which gives us some insight into what the conscience really is. Romans chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 14 and 15. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It says this, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, they don't have the Bible, they don't know, 
do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written where? In their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. Isn't that very interesting? In other words, just like we're going to be judged by what we know, the Gentiles are actually going to be judged by what they know too. And Paul said there's this group of Gentiles which don't have the law, but they do by nature the things contained in the law, and they're living according to their own conscience. They're going to be judged by what they know. And their conscience is either going to condemn them or excuse them. Does that make sense? It does make sense. The, uh, these people did not have the Bible as a guide for living, but they did have a conscience. And uh, they actually are being contrasted to the Jews, which had the Bible, but weren't doing the things contained in the law, right? Now, when I read this passage, and I sort of start to gather some insights about the conscience from it, I start having some real questions. Because in our world today, there's a, a system of thought we might refer to as moralism. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say moralism? Moralism is essentially the idea that um, you do what is right in your own eyes, and it's right for you. I do what is right for me in my own thinking, and it's right for me. Have you ever heard that type of idea? That is really, really popular in our world today. It's sort of, it's a, it's a version of spiritualism. It's a version of spiritualism because it's in essence saying all men are gods. It's the repetition of the first, one of the earliest lies of the devil when he said, you'll be as gods, knowing both good and evil. Yes, he? We've made ourselves into demigods by saying, well, we can, we can determine what is right for me. You can determine what is right for you. We both follow our consciences. What more could God ask for? Is that what Paul's teaching here in Romans chapter 2? Unfortunately, I've met many Christians, and this is sort of what our topic's about this afternoon. We're talking about the conscience. But I've met many Christians, many Adventist Christians, who were moralists. Now, they didn't say it quite the way I just said it a few minutes ago, but this is how they said it. Okay, Chester, I can see your point, what the Bible says about worldly entertainment or whatever the topic may be, food for their mind. But I'm not convicted about it. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. I leave the discussion scratching my head and wondering, like, what exactly do they think conviction is? I've even had them go so far as to say to me, because I'm not convicted about it, I'm not obligated to obey it. Or even, one step further, because I'm not convicted about it, were I to obey it, it would be legalism. And I think, wow, what do they think conviction really is? I think sometimes we have a tendency to expect our conscience, that wonderful innate feeling faculty or through which God often speaks to us, to replace or take the place of our reasoning faculties to take the place of God's word. And this, my friends, is very, very dangerous. I want to say something now that this may appear to be shocking to you um, as it was to me when I first thought it. But like 
Um, I learned, I think it's a true statement, and I think when we're finished, you'll probably agree as well. Listen to me very carefully. If you live by what your conscience defines as right and wrong, you're going to be lost. If you live by what your conscience defines to be right or wrong, you're going to be lost. Now, if I lost some of you, just wait a minute. We're going to look at God's Word a little more closely. And I hope you can see what I'm trying to say. There are many references in the Bible about the conscience. Let's turn to one of them. It's 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2. But in the Bible, what you'll find is there are not only consciences described which are leading to God and to goodness. There are consciences that are described which are bad consciences. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a what? Hot iron. Let's turn a few more pages over to Titus. Titus chapter 1 and verse 15. It says this, Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and what? Conscience is defiled. Put very simply, don't trust your conscience. Why? Because there are good consciences and there are bad consciences. It may or may not be accurate. Trusting your conscience will lead you to extremes on one hand or another. God never intended for our consciences to be the definition of right and wrong. I remember a friend of mine who um, was very conscientious. And that word's related to the conscience, isn't it? Because whenever he was convicted of something and he had this sense or impression, he wanted to follow it. And he was very sincere in this. And I remember he was probably 17 or 18 at the time. He's actually my student. Um, and he, he wanted to have a closer walk with God. He wanted to study his Bible more. Very, very sincere. And what he found was when he ate, his mind became sort of cloudy. And so you know what he was convicted of? He, he was convicted that he needed to eat less. So that he could study better and he could read better and he could so he cut back on his intake, you know, started eating less. But he ate less and his mind was still cloudy. So what did he do? He was convicted he should eat less. He was about my size, not very large. But he got down to like ninety five pounds or something. You know, about half of what I weigh. And Finally, I realized what was happening. And I said to him, you're trusting an impression somehow when it simply isn't logical. There's nothing inspired to say that you're eating too much. It's normal when you eat food for some blood to go from your brain to your stomach. Otherwise, it wouldn't digest, right? So you're not going to think quite as clearly right then. That's why it's good to eat 
have your devotions early in the morning when you first wake up before you eat breakfast, I guess. I don't know. But the point is, I shared with him a, to, uh, a pastor in the Spirit of Prophecy, says this, even the impressions of the Holy Spirit upon the heart are to be tested by the Word of God. And so he began eating. Praise the Lord. And um, he's a friend of mine today. But his conscience, you understand, was telling him, I overate. I overate. What about the heathen referred to in Romans 2? Didn't they simply just do what they thought was right? The answer is yes. But notice two significant observations. If we look in Romans chapter 2, there are two things that Paul said. He's talking about the Gentiles which have not the law, but do by nature the things contained in the law. He's not talking about all the Gentiles. Do you understand? In other words, he didn't just say that as long as they're sincere in their idol worship, that's fine, they're going to be saved. They're following their consciences. He said there are Gentiles who don't have the law, but they are actually living in harmony with the law of God. Does that make sense? Is that all the Gentiles? No. Is that all that are just walking in the sight of their own eyes and... No, there's a way that seems right in a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. And so there's a specific group of Gentiles that Paul's referring to. Those who, because of their willingness to sacrifice self and listen to the Holy Spirit's voice upon their heart in nature or revelation or however they heard it, they actually, they actually were doing by nature the things contained in the law. That's the group he's talking about. Second, Notice that those heathen which have not the law don't have any other opportunity for knowing what is right and wrong. We, my friends, have the Word of God. Two important observations. One, he's talking about those who are actually living in harmony with God's will. And second, they don't have another option. And so they're following their conscience, which is the best that they can do. This reference, this referring to their experience, does not indicate that the conscience is to take the place of God's Word in defining truth or righteousness. I want to share with you now a statement from the Spirit of Prophecy. It's found in uh, Mind, Character, and Personality, Volume 1, page 322. It says this, The idea is entertained by many that a man may practice anything that he conscientiously believes to be right. But the question is, has the man a well-instructed, good conscience? Or is it biased and warped by his own preconceived opinions? A conscience is not to take the place of thus saith the Lord. Consciences do not all harmonize and are not all inspired alike. Some consciences are dead Seared with a hot iron. Men may be conscientiously wrong as well as conscientiously right. Paul did not believe in Jesus of Nazareth and he hunted the Christians from city to city, verily believing that he was doing service for God. What really got me attention was when I found out that not only are some consciences good and some consciences bad, consciences can change. That's a new thought. For, it was for me. I just thought my conscience was something that, you know, is the Holy Spirit speaking to me, and God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I mean, my conscience is always going to be the same, right? But our consciences can actually change. In Paul's day, they were Christians who had only recently been freed from the superstitions of paganism. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 
in the, these pagans' mind, the gods of the heathen, the temples around them, these gods have power to curse or to bless. And so, in their thinking, for them to eat or not to eat, food offered to an idol was a fearful thing, right? Because these idols had the power to either bless the food or to curse the food, or if it wasn't blessed, it would be cursed, I guess. And so for them, it was a big deal. And um, Paul knew, however, that there was only one God in the whole universe, and it says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, But to us there is but one God, the Father, and of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. Paul had a knowledge that these people did not have. Now, by the time they became Christians, I suppose they also agreed in sort of this monotheistic view of the world, right? In fact, Ellen White even says, by the time Jesus came, the early time of the early Christian church, the world was weary of paganism. And they actually tended to, to want a monotheistic worldview. But many of these pagans even though they had come to view God as the only true God or the supreme God or however they viewed them at the time, the, the, their minds were so deeply ingrained with this thinking of the power of these idols that it wasn't just easy for them to snap out of that and all of a sudden think that that's just a piece of wood. I can kick it. I could throw it. I could burn it. They couldn't. They just didn't feel that way. They, they didn't have that knowledge yet. And he even goes on in verse 7 and he says this, Howbeit there's not in every man that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol. If you were to put a piece of bread that had been blessed by an idol in front of one of these newly converted pagans, you know what they would do? Oh! That would be pagan worship. That would be going back to my old days. I'm no longer a pagan. I'm a Christian. I don't want to practice paganism. If you put it in front of Paul, what would he say? The idol didn't change the bread. It's a piece of stone. It's a piece of wood. It didn't hurt that bread. I can eat it. But Paul's contacts, his new converts, they'd be saying, no. You see, that, that, there's, something, there's something with that bread. And it, it, would, it, would, it would feel to them like they were going back to their old, and, their old um, gods and idol worship. You see, your conscience is not a static, unchanging entity like we sometimes assume. Your conscience is a fluid, changeable, impressible part of your awareness. And the thought that may be new to you is that your conscience is only as good as its education. Your conscience is only as good as its education. If it is being educated by the Word of God, it is constantly becoming more accurate. If it is being educated by the world, it is constantly, certainly becoming less and less accurate. Again, from Mind, Character, and Personality, Volume 1, page 324. It is not enough for a man to think himself safe in following the dictates of his conscience. The question to be settled is, is the conscience in harmony with the word of God? Wow. That's the question for me to ask myself. It's not just a matter of, is this what I think is the right thing to do? It's is what I am being impressed by or with. Is it in harmony with God's word? See, that's what I was trying to tell my student. 
I was trying to tell my student, if you're being impressed with something that's not in harmony with inspiration, don't follow it. Because this is our standard, not this. Humanism, moralism. I remember as a kid, teenager probably, I learned a little jingle. One of my Bible teachers taught it to me. The song, There is a road inside of you. Have you ever heard that song? Inside of me there is one too. It goes, O wandering pilgrim in the dark, the road designs in your heart. And now I look back at that. I mean, we used to sing it, you know, it's sort of pretty catchy. No, it's not. That's apostasy. The road design is not in my heart, it's not in your heart. Unless it's, you know, it's put there by the Word of God. It's not what is in us that will lead us to the right. Now, why is this important for us? Okay, I didn't finish that statement. Page 324. The question to be settled is, is the conscience in harmony with the Word of God? If not, it cannot be safely followed, for it will deceive. The conscience must be enlightened by God. Time must be given. Check this out. Time must be given to the study of the Scriptures and prayer. Thus, the mind will be established, strengthened, and settled. That's how you educate your conscience, spending time in Bible study and prayer. That's important, isn't it? So important to spend that time. Now, the reason this is important as I look at it, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, as I understand it at least, I think there's one very, very important reason why this is so essential for us to understand. In Revelation chapter 13, we see a sort of a snapshot of the world during its last and final deceptions. And um, by the way, I don't think we're that far off from Revelation 13, the two beasts and the United States in prophecy and the mark of the beast and the image and all those things being fulfilled. In fact, I'm not so concerned. We won't get into politics or world events or anything of, of that nature right now. Um, but I'm not so concerned. I'm not so convinced that we are not already seeing aspects of Revelation 13 being fulfilled before our very eyes. I'm talking about the second beast, the United States uh, serving in a, in a uh, enforcer role for another entity that's behind the scenes, really making the decisions. Of course, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, except, <laughs> except I believe the devil is a great conspirator. And as the Bible reveals it, there's going to be some serious things happening at the end of time that the, most of the world isn't going to realize what's really happening behind the scenes. We know. Revelation 13, let's just read verse 8. It says this, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, I want to say something here that may, um, I, uh, sometimes is not popular, but um, I believe with all my heart that the Seventh-day Adventist message, the Three Angels message, is God's message for this last time. I believe that the Seventh-day Advent movement is God's end-time remnant movement of Bible prophecy. Some people don't like that term remnant anymore, but I'm not ashamed of it. I believe that we're fingered by prophecy as being God's people if we're believing this message. Now, if we try to come to an understanding 
of Revelation 13. I think that most of us probably here in this room are going to agree the traditional Adventist belief that Babylon, the first beast of Revelation 13, etc., etc., this end-time deceptive power is a Christian power. Are we sort of in agreement on that? But sometimes I don't think we stop to really analyze what that means in our, in our actual practical application. It doesn't mean we go down the road and we look at a Christian you know, going to church on Sunday and we see, ah, the beast. Okay? <laughs> That's not what it means. What I'm trying to say is this. Somehow, when we've read Revelation 13, we've read all about the, the end time and persecution and, and, and the mark of the beast and the image of the beast and the Sunday law and the death decree and all these things. We get this mental image of people at the end of time who are fighting God. You know, who are against the truth, the wicked they're referred to as, right? And we get this mental image of people who are, who are sort of evil. You know? I mean, mean. You, they're almost sprouting horns. That's how evil they are. I mean, they're related to the beast. They are the beast. And so it's sort of like, we get this mental image of somehow there's going to be the bad people at the end of time, and then there's going to be the good people at the end of time. And it's going to be really clear who's the good people and who's the bad people. Don't you sometimes get that mental image? Like, you know, it's going to be good, bad, good, bad. But the fact of the matter is, it's not. I mean, there's going to be some bad people. But I'm afraid, uh, again, I don't want to get into politics or anything else, but I'm afraid that, you know, Adventists who are standing up for religious liberty and, and the rights of the minority, Adventists are going to be lumped in with a whole bunch of bad people. You know, people like... Uh, well, I, I assume maybe if there's some sort of a religious right awakening and a great revival to get back to God and all this thing happening, there's going to be people like homosexuals and those type of people. They're going to be sort of lumped off onto the side and being fought against too. You understand what I'm saying? And the the people who are actually enforcing the image of the beast and the mark of the beast and are tr- leading out in this what I think is going to be a great religious awakening, a false religious awakening, a great revival, a false revival, a great spirituality, but a false spirituality, they're going to actually be really good people. You ever think about that? I don't want to try to finger any group of people because being in any particular group today doesn't mean you're going to be in that group then. You understand what I'm saying? But if I, it helps me if I try to imagine this as being like the, the really conservative Baptist friends that are like homeschooling and really, really, they're good people. You know what I'm saying? They go to church and they sing to Jesus and they pray to Jesus and they, they, they seem to love Jesus and they actually will go, many of them, to the very end after it's too late and they're going to find out they've been following this deception with Jesus wasn't really Jesus. It was just, it was 666. You know, it was almost there, but it wasn't quite. It, it, it seemed so true and the whole world was behind it, but it, it wasn't biblical. And many are going to say to Jesus, and they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we do all these great, wonderful works? We went to church, we cast out demons, we, we prayed in your name, we sang in your name. And he'll say, I never knew you. And boy, When I think of these poor people, it makes me really want to give the three angels' message, doesn't it? It's in love that God gives the three angels' message. It's babble and come out of her, my people, right? Because if you don't come out, you're going to partake of her sins, you're going to receive her plagues. It's in love. That's my worldview of the end of time. 
It's a fairly traditional Adventist worldview, but it's important, I think, for us to realize that the people who are in that category, that camp we call the wicked sometimes, they're going to be good people. And they're going to be people who have consciences that are almost right. Not quite. Because they haven't submitted them fully to the Word of God. That's what makes the difference. Their consciences have been educated rather by the world than by the Word. You know there's going to be Adventists in that category too. I'm digressing a bit from our topic here, but bear with me just a minute. There's going to be Adventists in that category too. It says in the book Great Controversy, I think it's page 608, it says something along these lines. As a storm approaches... A large class of those who have professed faith in the third angel's message ab uh, abandon their position and join the opposition, or something like that. And then she says why this happens. By conforming to the world and partaking of its spirit, they have come to view matters in nearly the same light. When the test is brought, they are prepared to choose the easy and popular side. And I used to think it was because they didn't have enough proof text memorized about the Sabbath. <laughs> but I think in the reality what's going to happen is it's a more fundamental understanding of truth. They're going to come to see truth in a little more of a pluralistic, maybe humanistic, moralistic way. What's right is for you is okay for you. What's right for me is okay for me. That's the way the world thinks. And so then doctrine and truth doesn't become so important. Let's not make a big issue of it. We, we all serve the same Jesus, don't we? And it bothers me. I, I'm, I'm bearing my soul here a bit. But it really bothers me, friends, when I see Adventists running to Babylon to learn whatever they're running to Babylon to learn. Because it scares me. What do they think? What is their conscience? What are they being educated? Do they remember that the battle at the end of time is not going to be against horned creatures and us? It's going to be really Christians persecuting Christians. And in the end, the majority of Christendom is going to be deceived. Almost meeting the mark, but not quite. So I, 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 I get off the topic, but you understand, this makes the issue of end-time consciences even all the more relevant. You understand? End-time mm -hmm. consciences. I think that many of them will be convict, convicted that Sunday needs to be honored in the way it once was. Many of them will be convicted that Sunday is right for them and even right for the rest of the world. I want to be blunt as necessary and as kind as possible. But I'm afraid for young people, my friends, anyone who is trusting their consciences. I'm afraid that in the end we might perish ironically as religious people, spiritual people, people following their convictions. I'm, I'm afraid of this because I think today it is Satan's priority to educate your conscience and mine in practices and beliefs that are contrary to God's will. 
And unless we have an overt, intentional plan to educate our consciences in harmony with the Word of God, the devil's going to make sure they get the wrong education. That's why I made the statement at the beginning. If you follow your conscience, you're going to be lost. If you follow your conscience alone, you're going to be lost. Can I share Satan's plan with you? Are you familiar with the, uh, the vision which Ellen White had where she saw Satan talking to his angels? It was actually originally included in the great book Great Controversy in the 1884 edition, but when it was prepared for wide publication, distribution among the world, as it were, um, that passage was taken out because there's really no biblical basis for it. I only believe it because I've seen the tests and believe that, that Ellen White is a true prophet. This, then, this vision was taken out and put in a book that's very Adventist and really designed for an Adventist audience. It's called Testimonies to Ministers. Not very many non-Adventists are being sold that book. And so the book Testimonies to Ministers still holds this uh, passage, um, or you can get it in the 1884 edition of The Great Controversy. This is what it says. These are Satan's words that I'm quoting. I'm sorry? You know, um, I only have the Great Controversy here, and it's page 340, 341. And I used to know off the top of my head Testimonies to Ministers, but um, I think you could find it. You could probably just scan the index, and you could probably find it in Testimonies to Ministers. I don't recall the page number. Those who have, these are Satan's words, so I'm quoting, Ellen White quoted. Those who, through those who have a form of godliness, but know not the power... We can gain many who would otherwise do us great harm. Lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God, will be our most effective helpers. So who are the, who are the most effective? Those who have a form of godliness who are lovers of pleasure, right? Those who are, yeah, we're Adventists. Those of this class who are apt and intelligent will serve as decoys to draw others into our snares. How do you like that? If you're intelligent, you are under double obligation to be committed to Jesus Christ. Because otherwise, you are on Satan's special asset list. And he's going to use you. Those who are apt and intelligent in this class will serve as decoys to draw others into our snares. Many will not fear their influence because they profess the same faith. They're Adventists. They do it. We will thus lead them to conclude, listen to this, we will thus lead them to conclude that the requirements of Christ are less strict than they once believed. And that by conformity to the world, they would exert a greater influence with worldlings. Ooh, good motivation, right? Evangelism. Thus, how? By conforming to the world and thinking that thus they can have more influence with worldlings, thus they will separate themselves from Christ. Then they will have no strength to resist our power. And ere long, they will be ready to ridicule their former zeal and devotion. The scary thing is, I have seen this repeated in the lives of young people over and over and over again. Some of you say, well, I don't believe the spirit of prophecy. You just proved it. Conforming to the world, hanging out with people that were Adventists too, but they didn't, they had a form of godliness, denied the power thereof. 
pretty soon they were conformed to the world and they thought, well, if we don't fit in, how can we win them? And before long, they were separated from Christ. They had no power to resist the devil's temptation. And do you hear what it says? Ere long, they will be ready to ridicule their former zeal and devotion. Have you ever seen something like that? Oh, I can't believe I once thought that. I believe that. Their consciences have changed. Their conscience has changed. That's Satan's plan, to change our conscience. And because they're being conformed to the world instead of being transformed by the world, by the word, they actually ridicule what they used to believe. They can't believe they were so strict. They were so legalistic. Now, I want to ask you a question. In this process through which they went through, did the standard of right and wrong change? It certainly did not. And this only illustrates why it's so important for our minds to be saturated by the Word of God. Unless we are willing to follow God's Word and make it our guide for what is right and wrong, despite our personal inclinations and feelings and impressions in regard to the matter, we may be lost. We need the Word of God. And I'd like to just, I'd like to just add, that as I've watched it happen, People make these sweeping changes in their lives and begin ridiculing their, their past views. What I've noticed is it wasn't because they were studying the Bible more. They couldn't point to me any inspiration. Thus saith the Lord says, this is why I believe what I used to believe wasn't right. They've become much more laid back if they're studying the Bible at all. And they don't, they, they're simply conformed to what's popular and what's accepted around them. And so... Should we follow things? I want to ask you a question. This is where the rubber meets the road. Should we follow things that we're not convicted about? <laughs> I would like to say yes. Okay, let me, let me explain. If I find in God's word, in inspiration, a truth that is plain and abundantly clear, then I believe I'm obligated to obey it whether I feel like it or not, whether I am impressed of its importance or convicted or not. Let me say it, put it this way. If I'm not willing to obey what God clearly says in His Word, how can I expect Him to somehow miraculously teach me accurately through my thoughts and feelings? Does that make sense? If I'm not willing to obey what God clearly says in His Word, how can I expect him to somehow teach me miraculously through my thoughts and feelings? I think God says, look, if you want to know more truth, follow the truth you know. If you want to know more about my word, follow what's clear. To him that doeth my will, he that doeth my will will know of my doctrine, Jesus says, John seven seventeen. Walk in the light while you have the light, right? We talked about that in our first seminar today. Truth is progressive. Obey what you know to be right. If it's clear, if the Bible says it, if it's, in, if it's an injunction in the spirit of prophecy, and it's clear. I'm not saying you shouldn't be careful. I'm not saying you shouldn't be balanced. I'm not saying you shouldn't use good hermeneutic principles and studying both the Bible and spirit of prophecy. But if the Bible says it, I believe it, and that's good enough for me. It settles it for me, yes. And so, yes, I believe we ought to be obeying what we find in God's Word, whether we have a... Uh, Conviction about it or not. Rather, an accurate and sensitive conscience depends 
on an implicit and unswerving yielding to what I find to be right in the Word of God. To ignore God's Word because I'm not convicted is to sear my conscience with a hot iron. And I can assure you that unless there's a miraculous change of heart, I will never be convicted about something I don't want to be convicted about. Now, I've been involved in evangelism for for a few years, and perhaps this issue of the conscience has become more plain to me as I've seen people relating to conviction. Those of you who have done evangelism, you know what I'm talking about. Have you ever sat and watched, maybe some of you have done Bible work or preached evangelistic series, and you've seen, you've seen some of those contacts maybe sitting on the front row. They come every night, and they've, they're getting into the meetings, and then all of a sudden some topic comes up, and bam! It's, it's John chapter 8 all over again. They're mad at you. You did this. you know. And, and conviction comes in various forms. Anger, joy, tears, crying. Um, avoiding, um, I mean, uh, conviction comes in many different forms, but they're mad at you. When really, their conscience has just been instructed by the Word, and they're being convicted. The Word of God is powerful, very powerful. How many times I've seen people get up and leave the room or avoid me because they think that they can therefore escape conviction. When I see this happen, I fear for their souls, and I begin working. Because if we cultivate a disposition to do what we want to do and avoid or resist the convictions of the Spirit upon our heart, we are searing our consciences. Our consciences will one day simply reflect the education we've placed them under. The Review and Herald, September 3, 1901. From Genesis to Revelation, the conditions upon which eternal life is promised are made plain. God requires that those who shall enter heaven shall be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Keep my commandments and live is the requirement of God. But one says, my conscience does not condemn me in not keeping the commandments of God. But in the word of God, we read that there are good consciences and bad consciences. And the fact that your conscience does not condemn you in not keeping the law of God does not prove that you are uncondemned in his sight. Take your conscience to the word of God. And see if your life and character are in accordance with the standard of righteousness which God has there revealed. You can then determine whether or not you have an intelligent faith and what manner of conscience is yours. The conscience of man cannot be trusted unless it is under the influence of divine grace. Satan takes advantage of an enlightened conscience and thereby leads men into all manner of delusions because they have not made the word of God their counselor. So I ask you the question this afternoon, how is it with your conscience? Is your conscience seared? Have you ever hardened your heart to God speaking to you? Are your ideas of right and wrong somehow defiled by your background, your preconceived ideas and opinions and choices? The good news that I want to leave you with is that God's word will not only enlighten our consciences, But as we obey the word, our consciences will be refined and purified. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. I love this verse, and we've got to end. I don't want to scare everyone here and think, oh, I do hope that you you see after these three seminars, I hope you see the importance of spending more time in the word of God. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 14 and 15 powerful passage here came alive to me after I had this made this study Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 and 15 
How much more shall the blood of Christ, blood of who? The blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your what? Conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What a promise. The blood of Jesus Christ, my friends, is sufficient not only to forgive me for my sins, but to actually purge my conscience from dead works. All of those things that I did that seared it, it can cleanse my conscience and make it new again. Praise God. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ's blood is sufficient for even the weakest, most dead and hardened conscience. And to make this even more powerful, the next verse says this. For this cause... What cause? The purging of your consciences. For this cause, He is the mediator of the New Testament. That by the means of death... For the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Jesus is our high priest in heaven today, my friends. He's ever interceding for us for the purpose of cleansing your conscience and my conscience from sin. I'm not saying that's the only purpose. He cleanses us from all sin. He cleanses our record. But He's here to cleanse our conscience too. That's what He wants to do for each one of us. Turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 10. I wish we could just connect the dots between Hebrews chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 10. It's one letter, one thought that Paul is completing. And so when we get from Hebrews chapter 9, for this cause, he is the mediator of of, a new covenant. I want you to notice in verse 10 and verse 21. And having an high priest, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil what? Conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. Now remember, Jesus says He's going to have a church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, right? He's going to purify it by the washing of water by the Word. Jesus told disciples in John, that, that's, that, that's um, Ephesians chapter 5. Jesus told disciples in John chapter 15, Now you are clean through the word that I've spoken unto you. The washing of water by the word. It's as we study the Bible, through the blood of Jesus being applied in our hearts, the Spirit working in us, and us saturating ourselves with our souls with the word of God that God is able to cleanse us of an evil conscience. Oh, I'm so thankful for Jesus, aren't you? I'm convicted I need to spend more time in Bible study. I'm convicted that I need to spend more time educating my, pro- my conscience. Let's not skip the last verse, verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. If you're ever discouraged, thinking, I don't know, my conscience has been educated in the wrong places by the wrong things, remember, it's not you, it's He that is faithful, who has promised. Jesus is able to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I trust that that this has uh, provoked some thoughts in you. My challenge for you today is to take take the Word of God just as it reads. My plea is that we might each one surrender our own thoughts and feelings or even convictions to the Word of God.
and be willing to implicitly follow that word and uh, submit to it. My prayer is that we will each have a pure conscience. As Paul said, pray for us. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 18. Pray for us, for we trust that we have a good conscience and all things willing to live honestly. Let's pray for each other, shall we? Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, today we've only had a few minutes to talk about the importance of studying our Bibles and how we can do that. Lord, I know each time I share these thoughts, I'm convinced again of my great need to unlearn things I've learned and learn things that I haven't learned. Lord, I just want to pray that you'd help me to saturate my mind with the Word of God and to be transformed by the Word instead of being conformed to the world. Lord, I have that same prayer for each one gathered here. We're living in momentous times. We're living in times when the deceptions are great and the devil will make the, class, the, the track of error so close to the track of truth that it'll be impossible to distinguish between them except through the Scriptures. Lord, we can't trust our consciences. We need your word. And we want to have consciences which are educated by the word and inspired by the word, enlightened by the word. So today I just want to pray that you would help us. Help us to be students of the book. Help us to put aside our own human preconceived ideas and opinions. Help us to be willing to, uh, to follow you wherever that word takes us even if it sometimes crosses our own inclinations and impressions or what we term convictions. Lord, may that be our experience, we pray. May we each have clear consciences, good consciences, cleansed by your blood and by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.